We're continuing our study. We took a week off to talk about the doctrine of once for all forgiveness, but we're back now in to our study through the book of Acts. Of course, we're studying through it because we want to relive it. We're picking up at verse 12. <clears throat> Excuse me, verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. Verse 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So in the wake of God's judgment on Ananias and Sapphira, no insincere, no superficial, no casual follower of Christ would dare identify with the church. They wanted, um, they wanted to make sure that they, were, that they had their heart in the right place before they identified as a follower of Christ. And I think that's a, a pretty incredible result from this um, one-time event of Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead because they lied to the Holy Spirit. It, it produced within the people who were identifying with Christ or calling themselves Christians, it produced within them the necessity to examine themselves to see if they were legitimate, sincere um, followers of Jesus Christ or whether they had just taken him in name only. And so that's, I think, part of the reason why there was such a severe an immediate uh, response from God to the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, this church thing is just getting off the ground at this point. And so God is keeping it very pure, and he's making sure that there is uh, nothing to defile it until the foundation is laid. And so the people wouldn't dare join the apostles as they were preaching in Solomon's portico, which is one of the uh, areas in the temple court. But what they didn't mind doing was praying for them and holding the apostles in high esteem. Verse 14, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, so that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on them. Pretty fascinating. Now, when I read verse 14 and I read about more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women. Uh, the thing that, that stands out to me is, like I had mentioned before, this, this new movement is just getting off the ground, and God is calling many people to himself. Uh, a lot of people are coming to this 
belief that whatever the apostles are doing and saying is right and true, and they are attracted to it. They're attracted to the signs. They're attracted to the wonders. They're attracted to the miracles. But what costs them is belief in the words of the apostles, that they have to believe on Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that he was buried, or sorry, that he was died, so that he died, was buried, that he rose again, and that he is returning from heaven one day. That Jesus came to save the people from their sins, that he came to offer himself as the atoning sacrifice for sins. And then, of course, when you truly believe that, there is much that is required of the believer. So that's what brings us back to that previous verse when uh, a bunch of people were like, man, I'm not going near this thing because they were afraid of what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. But yet at the same time, there were still many who said, you know what? This is real. And as we'll learn in a moment, uh, that's what boldness brings. Boldness forces people to make a decision. There's a lot of people that can call themselves a Christian because they're not confronted with bold preaching. They're not confronted uh, with bold uh, believers that call them to a higher standard. They're just able to float along. And uh, that's what we see, I think, going on in these verses. Some people that are like, man, I'm not going near that thing. And others that are saying, yes, I want that. pretty amazing that even as Peter's shadow crosses people lying in the street on cots and mats, that, um, that they're being healed, or so we can, we can assume, because as the people gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, they were all healed. And you know, my doctrine of divine healing is changing, or at least it's growing. Uh, I think that um, I think it's important for us to believe that God desires that we be well, that it's His desire for us, and He has provided the means for that to be. And of course, we have our full and final healing when we cross over into eternity. Um, but even on this side of eternity, God has provided healing for us. It's his desire that we be healed. It's Satan's desire that we be sick. Now, Satan can't make us sick, but God can heal us. I don't believe God withholds healing until we fill up our faith meter to a certain point either, either because, I mean, we're told that small faith can move mountains. I just think that um, in all of it, whether we are healed in this life or the next, we have to understand that God's desire is that we be healed. He has provided healing for us. He is a healer, and we don't have to be scared to call upon it. And that's the point I guess I want to make. I was always scared to call upon God for healing because what if the person didn't get healed? Uh, 
What if, um, what if they still, what if they remained sick? What if they died from this sickness? What, what does that say to people? And I, uh, you know, I've, I've been coming to this realization that um, what I think really doesn't matter. <laughs> Uh, it's what God, it's what God thinks, and uh, He has provided healing for us, and I don't need to be afraid to to ask Him for healing, believe Him for healing. I'll just give you a quick example. Like both my twins have have curvatures in their spine, one worse than the other, and and as a dad, whenever your kid are sick, you kids are sick, you want them well. And when we had our healing service there a few nights ago, it was interesting. I, I was able to like pray and believe for healing for everyone else but like when it came to me to go over to my daughter and pray and believe for healing I was like I don't want to like scar her and like pray for her healing and then she doesn't get healed and what will what will she think about God and you know that internal dialogue that maybe you've all had too and I just had to say shut up Matt pray for her to be healed and let the Lord do uh, what he's going to do and in all of it I have to trust that God's grace is sufficient for her, as it is for me, as it is for you, that no matter what we deal with in this life, his grace will be enough. And so uh, I guess I just went off on a tangent there because, you know, we read, you know, they were all healed, and we ask ourselves, well, what's wrong with me? I'm not healed. And I think the main thing we have to take away from that is healing is God's desire, in the early church, healing and signs and wonders were the only sign that people had to believe what the apostles were saying. Now we have the greatest sign. We do have the book. I do want to see signs, wonders, and miracles, but this is the greatest sign. It's the only one we truly need to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Uh, however, especially at that time, the apostles had no authority other than what Jesus gave them. Jesus had all the authority, and he gave it to them, and these signs and wonders were proof that what they were saying was true. Now, we can have confidence that what we say is true because we have the book, but the book also tells us that signs and wonders follow the preaching of the word. And so that's what we'll continue to do, continue to believe God for healing. Don't get discouraged. Don't give up. Keep praying for healing. Verse 17 but, but the high priest rose up. What is, uh, what is Luke saying but to? He just gives this wonderful praise report. We, we get this snapshot of church history from verses uh, 12 to 16. That there were signs and wonders. That the serious believers were being weeded out from the, uh, you know, the casual believers, and that Peter was walking down the street and, and his shadow was healing people, and people were coming from all over the place to be healed by the apostles. This amazing stuff's happening, but the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and look what it says. They were filled with jealousy. Wow. They were filled with jealousy. And they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Put them in the public 
prison. Hmm. I'm not so sure. I'd have to do a little bit of research, but they were jealous and arrested them because they were doing this in the temple, or at least in the temple courts around Solomon's portico. And if I'm not mistaken, there was a place for people who were breaking temple rules to be detained and to be punished. I don't think it was the public prison. I think the public prison was owned and operated by the empire, Roman Empire. So it's interesting because they had this, um, because they were in cahoots with the empire, it's like they took these, um, these people that should have technically, in, in their minds, be punished for breaking temple rules and said, now let's really punish them and let's throw them in the public prison. Because, of course, they were jealous and they were vengeful and they wanted to make these people pay. They'd already told them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus and they said, we won't. And so now they're like, okay. We brought them before the Sanhedrin. We brought them before like the temple uh, justice, the yeah, we, we exposed them to temple justice and they didn't believe it. So let's, let's expose them to, to Roman justice and see if they'll shut up then. Verse 19, But during the night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to all the people, or speak to the, speak to the people all the words of this life, capital L. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So I'm sure the priests and the Sadducees, or the high priest, and all who were with him, and the party of the Sadducees, I can imagine they were astonished the next morning to see the apostles out of the public prison and preaching this word and preaching the word of life. So preaching Jesus. So when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened the doors, we found that there was no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came to them and said, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain, the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. That's a pretty interesting detail that Luke includes, isn't it? I mean, don't get me wrong. The chief priests, uh, the high priest, his, his cronies, and then the Sadducees and others, they were upset. 
They were jealous. They were vengeful. They even were spiteful. But when they uh, went to arrest these guys, they uh, did not do it by force because they were afraid of the people. They were afraid of the reaction of the people. You, can re- you might remember in an earlier passage, and I can't point it out right this second, but it said that um, the followers of Christ gained favor with the people, with all the people. It's in chapter 4 there somewhere. And I don't think it was just, of course, the other followers of Christ. I think it was everybody. I think all the onlookers, whether they named the name of Jesus or not, or whether they were Roman citizens, I think uh, they were all captivated by this small group of people that was growing every day who were proclaiming this name of Jesus. Oh, I'm on the wrong page. There we go. One moment here. Okay, verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Uh, You know, something that stuck out to me here as I read that verse was the word teaching. And I I think I've mentioned it before, and, and maybe it bears repeating. The signs and the wonders and the miracles, the healings are amazing. But the most threatening thing to the forces of evil is the teaching. Uh, that's why in Second uh, Corinthians 10, Paul says, The weapons of our warfare are not, not carnal, but they have divine power to tear down strongholds and every lofty idea raised against the knowledge of God. And then in the next book, in, in Ephesians, when he's talking about the armor of God, he calls the weapon that we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so it's the Word of God that... that Um, poses the biggest threat to the kingdom of darkness. We're going to read about a guy uh, later on in this passage who was a magician. He could could mimic some of the the things the, uh, the apostles were doing. Now, the apostles were doing legitimate healings, and this, this sorcerer, he could, he could mimic them. He could kind of use his magic, and he could use some parlor tricks and, and make it look like he was doing the same thing. And, you know, all throughout the scriptures, we see uh, people on the other side who are able to do supernatural things. I'm, I'm thinking specifically of when Moses is in Pharaoh's court and he throws the staff down and it becomes a snake and, and Pharaoh's magicians can do the same thing. But the threat to Pharaoh was not that, hey, Moses can, can make his uh, staff turn into a snake, but it was that God told him, let my people go. It was the word of God that posed the biggest threat. And it's still happening here in the book of Acts, and it's still happening today. Whenever we stand on the truth of God's word, Satan 
hates it. He hates it. The world hates it. The religious people hate it. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we should stop speaking it. In fact, it means we should speak it all the more. Uh, I think so many times as, as believers, and I'm just going to put myself in there, sometimes we get so close to victory, um, and then we back off and we say, okay, never mind. You know, I've pushed too hard or I've pushed too long. Maybe I should just back off. You know, if we're making the unbeliever uncomfortable, if we're making Satan uncomfortable, keep on going. Don't stop until you have the victory. Because Jesus has won this victory. He's already provided the victory for us. And so we have to be conquerors in his name. And we are, of course, more than conquerors in him. And this teaching filled the whole city, which is incredible. I'm praying for that for, for our city. We're praying for a revival. We want to bring it to our city and beyond. Yes, we want to bring uh, incredible, we want to bring the presence of God to the people. We want them to experience it. We want them to, to see miracles, signs, wonders, healings. We want them to see it all. But we want them to hear the word of God because that's the thing that transforms them and saves them. And we want to bring it to them. I want my whole city filled with this powerful teaching. As Paul said in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of this gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. But Peter and the apostles, you know, this, this section started off, but the high priest and it, uh, it's, it finishes with, but Peter, but Peter and the apostles, they answered him and said, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised, am I reading that right? Yeah. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Wow. Scathing indictment. You hung him, you killed him, but God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Uh, let's look at that word, leader and savior. Um, what do other translations say? Prince and Savior, okay. Usually we say Lord and Savior, right? It's interesting, it's an interesting phrase. Leader and Savior. Is any... Founder, good. That's it, that word founder, leader... Uh, what was yours, Bob? Prince. Prince. It's the same word that's in Hebrews 12, where he is the author, the founder of our faith. Um, he's preeminent, supreme. And this is a really bold statement that these apostles are making. I mean, we say it so much, we don't realize how... 
how dangerous those words are, especially for the early church, those who were living in Jerusalem, occupied, or living in Jerusalem under Roman occupation. I mean, the creed that you heard all the time in the empire was Caesar is Lord. Caesar is leader. Caesar is savior. Caesar is supreme. And here Peter says to these religious people, who had the same creed, by the way. Remember when Pilate said, shall I, shall I crucify your king? What did Caiaphas say? We have no king but Caesar. And so here Peter and the apostles are saying, our king is not Caesar. Our supreme leader is not Caesar. It's Jesus. And you killed him. But God raised him and exalted him as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit. I'm reminded here when Peter is saying this, that we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. I'm reminded, I think it's John chapter 16, where Jesus says to the apostles, I have many more things to tell you that you cannot bear right now, but I'll send someone. I'll send the Holy Spirit, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I said and did. And so... Peter says, we're witnesses to this, and our witness is confirmed by the Holy Spirit, who is the third member of the Godhead. And so his witness can be trusted. Uh, and God has given that Holy Spirit to all those who obey him. That same spirit that uh, Peter preached with lives in us who obey him. And so you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be shy. You don't have to worry about what you'll say when you're, before, um, when you're before people who are questioning you who, or who are persecuting you. You don't have to worry at that time. The Holy Spirit's going to give you the words to say. He gave the words to say to Peter and the other apostles, and he'll give the words to you as well. And the reason I know he'll give you the words, okay, and not just the apostles is because in the next chapter we're going to read about Stephen, the first martyr. Stephen was just an everyday Christian. He was an ordinary guy. He had the Holy Spirit because he obeyed Jesus. And uh, before he's executed for the faith, he preaches a powerful message, probably uh, just as powerful as any message Peter has preached up to this point. And so that same spirit that the apostles had, we have today. Verse 33, when they heard this, the priest and the Sadducees and the others, they were enraged. They were enraged. What were they earlier? Jealous. Now they're in a fit of rage. They're in a fit of rage. They've been challenged. And they wanted to kill them. Okay, so again, 
this doesn't just apply to the apostles. The previous verse about the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And then I told you that in the next chapter we're going to read about Stephen, an ordinary, everyday follower of Christ, uh, who was given the words to say by the Spirit. Well, the words he was given to say by the Spirit didn't get him acquitted. He still ended up getting stoned. He still ended up dead at the hands of his persecutor. But he is now in his eternal reward. And so I say that to say that this outcome, people hearing our message, being enraged, even to the point of wanting us dead, is a reality that we will all face. Hopefully, you know, it doesn't come to the, to the place where we actually end up like Stephen. But I think you've all been in a place where you've heard from people who would just as soon or would be just as happy if you were, if you and everyone like you was dead. I've been there. I've had people say that. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not embellishing. We do love all of the amazing things that the apostles said and did, but this is the real reality, like, or this is where the rubber meets the road, that ultimately every one of those apostles died a martyr's death, and, and John the Beloved died a, a criminal's death in exile. That's the price of following Jesus. And for a long time, you know, Christians have had, a, had it pretty easy. And it seems to me as though we're entering into a season when that ease, that comfort, um, is being taken away. And we'll be like, I think we'll see again what was happening there in verse 12 and 13. No casual person... No casual Christian, no uh, what's the word, superficial follower of Christ, no insincere believer will ever show up in this building because they'll know there's a huge cost. And what's amazing, though, I mean, I'm, I'm seeing it and hearing it all the time. People are desperately searching for something. They're searching for truth. They're coming here. They're finding it. They're going elsewhere and finding it. I was at a little bit of a pastor's gathering this afternoon with pastors from the area, and they were all saying a similar thing, that the churches are they're growing because people are searching. And we want, when they come here, that they hear unadulterated truth, not watered down. I'm not, I'm not making any accusation against any other pastor or church in this city. I'm just saying when they come here, I want to make sure that it's so clear and so Easy to understand, but, you know, it, when you hear it, a decision has to be made. You can't walk out the back door and go, oh, it felt good, now that was nice, and not make your decision. The Pharisees in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people. And he stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. 
And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. I love this phrase or this little story. For before these days, uh, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. But he too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they called in the apostles, look at this, (laughs) they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. It appears to me that they didn't take his advice for very long. Or at least they only took his advice to the point where they didn't kill these guys like they wanted to in verse 33. But they beat them up and said, now get out of here and don't mention that name ever again. Look at this. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the... um, What did it say earlier there? The leader and savior was Jesus. You know, I'm fascinated by that. Verse 41. When they left the presence of the council, they were rejoicing. Because they were counted worthy to suffer. Suffered dishonor for the name of Jesus. When one's identification with Jesus' name is the cause of ill treatment by others, such dishonor becomes, surprisingly, a privilege that imparts joy. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4, 13-16. So remember, 1 Peter is written by the same Peter that we were just reading about in the book of Acts. What's the number? 1 Peter 4, 13 to 16. So what's amazing about the Bible is its continuity and its synergy. And so here in the book of Acts, we're reading a history book of the early church We're reading about what the early apostles said and did and what the early church did. And now, you know, a few decades later, uh, these same apostles are writing letters to churches and to other groups of 
believers. And if you remember our first Peter series that we did uh, back in the spring and summer of last year, you might remember that Peter wrote his book to the elect exiles of the dispersion. So he wrote his book to all the Christians that eventually had to flee Jerusalem because of the persecution that they faced for the name of Jesus. See, back in Acts chapter 5, this church is just getting off the ground. It's just a small grassroots movement. Uh, They're thinking of it as nothing more than the movement of uh, Thaddeus and uh, the movement of Judas the Galilean. You know, here's a charismatic fellow that got a few followers, but when he died, the movement died with him. And so here's this Jesus. He whipped up the people into a frenzy, so they think, and he generated a few followers, you know, 12 people, and then a bunch of people went out to the desert to listen to him preach, but uh, he's dead now, or so they think. And so they're, they're assuming that, you know, just give it a little bit of time. They'll get over it. They'll move on because their leader's dead. Well, the fact is their leader was not dead. He was alive and is alive today, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And that's why, to me, it is, uh, so, this lends so much proof to this story uh, and to this book that people, and not just what the Bible tells us, but the historical record tells us, that people in untold thousands and millions throughout the ages have given their lives for this cause and for this person, for this leader and savior, Jesus. You don't do that for just anybody, but you do that for someone who you know is the Messiah, your savior and Lord sent from God. So all of that stuff is now informing what Peter is writing to this enormous number of people Decades later, who are now dispersed all over the empire and all over, and, and by this time, too, the empire is falling. It, the civilization, the Roman civilization is crumbling. But they're dispersed all over the empire because of this religious persecution. And so uh, let's read it here 1 Peter 3, or sorry, 1 Peter 4, 13 to 16. Actually, let's go from verse 12. The whole heading here is suffering for as a Christian. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. And why can Peter say rejoice? Well, because back in Acts chapter 5, after they were beaten up and sent out and told, don't you dare say that name ever again, It says that they left and they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. And so Peter says, when when fiery trial comes, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You see, we don't suffer for someone who didn't suffer for us first. And Christ endured worse. Nobody can say, I suffered more than Christ. People can say they've suffered differently than Christ. Christ didn't suffer absolutely everything that could be suffered, but his suffering was uh, enough that he can say that he is acquainted with our suffering uh, and that nothing we can go through he is unfamiliar with. Let's continue reading. 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You know, we're going through this difficult time now, and it seems like the enemy's winning. And we seem like the crazy ones because we're, we're worshiping this person we've never seen. And we're telling people he's coming one day. He's coming back one day. And when he does, you will bow before him, but it'll be too late. And so Peter's reminding them, rejoice because there's a day coming when, when Christ's glory will be revealed. And if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Let, no one, let not one of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. What is, why does Paul include this verse 15? Let no one of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Uh, because he knows that there will be the temptation to do that when you are persecuted, when you are treated unfairly, okay? when you see injustice. Peter is writing this from experience because when he saw the injustice and the betrayal of Jesus in the garden, he picked up his sword and swung it at one of the guards. And Jesus in that moment said to him, live by the sword and you'll die by the sword. And so we see themes of that going on here in this passage. That's why Peter's saying, listen, if you're suffering, make sure that it's not because you are, uh, because you've, you've become so mad at the injustice that you murder or that you steal or that you do evil in some way or that you meddle, but rather suffer as a Christian and you will not be ashamed but you will glorify God. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It is written, if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing 